Earlier this year, I visited California's Salton Sea for the first time. I went with my friend and colleague, Everett Katigback. He's a producer on this podcast, and you'll hear from him throughout this episode. It was his first trip back in over 20 years. It surprised me like how, how little has changed, but also and seeing the lake itself was kind of surprising. When I was standing there the other day, you know, it's, it's a no man's land. It's, it's literally like scenes out of Mad Max. You know, I know we, we say that kind of <laughs> jokingly, but you, you can like really envision it and it looks very similar. You know, you, you... Since the waters of the Colorado River rushed into the Salton Basin in 1905, the lake they created has been a source of promise and conflict. Now it's shrinking and has become one of the most polluted bodies of water in the country. It's also poised to become one of the largest sources of lithium in the United States. As the world transitions from gas to electric vehicles, demand for lithium is increasing rapidly. And so is interest in the Salton Sea. The potential for investment and industry could be transformational for the area. But what will that transformation look like? What impact will lithium extraction have on local communities? And what can examining the history of the Salton Sea reveal about its present and its future? Hello, and welcome to Beneath the Surface, a podcast from Stripe Press all about new ideas and big questions in the world of infrastructure. I'm your host, Tamara Winter. In the first episode of Beneath the Surface, we looked at charter cities, new urban developments built almost from scratch through financial investment and political will. In this episode, we're visiting a very different kind of place. So we're here in Salton City. This is, I think, the largest community out here around the Salton Sea. The communities that have grown near the Salton Sea are unincorporated and include everything from off-the-grid artist communities to half-inhabited suburban developments. The fate of these communities is tied to the sea. When it was a tourist destination, they felt the benefits. But that opportunity has long since dried up, along with the sea. Now, the promise of becoming a lithium valley is bringing a wave of development that could breathe new life into the area. I mentioned my colleague, Everett. Well, when we started talking about doing an episode on the history and future of Salton Sea, we found out that Everett and his family have a stake in the area. At the tail end of the Salton Sea's resort era, his family bought some land there, hoping, like many, that it was an up-and-coming oasis. Um, And this is the place that, when I was young, my parents bought a plot of land. We're, We're literally standing on this plot of land um, and around it is, there's a handful of homes, but for the most part, uh, it's a bunch of empty lots out here. It is a very picturesque view. It's, it's like a postcard, but I imagine the closer you get to it, the, the, less, uh, the less photogenic it gets. You have a daughter, Drew. How do you hope she experiences the Salton Sea? Do you think in her lifetime it might get, I don't know, popping? I don't know. I, I'm, I don't imagine she'll have any connection to it because... You know, I never talked about it growing up. It's just something that I totally forgot about. And then, um, 
you know, the more my parents are getting older and, and thinking they need to let go of this place, the more I'm hearing about the lithium stuff. So it's, it's for me, it's something that I just want to kind of hold on to for a little bit longer and then see if something happens. In the early 20th century, major construction projects were underway across Southern California. Engineers planned irrigation canal networks to bring water to arid corners of the California desert. The dream at the time was to provide water for farming to the scorching hot Imperial Valley, where temperatures regularly spike well above 100 degrees. Rain rarely falls, and snow has been recorded only once in the last century. But nature had other plans. For millennia, the Colorado River had occasionally made its way into the Salton Basin, creating lakes. But in the spring and summer of 1905, multiple floods wore down and eventually broke through the canal gates, and water poured into the basin. Initial attempts to close off the flow of water failed miserably. Another flood in November swept away the hastily constructed dams of gravel and brush. For two years, the water flowed. And for two years, crews worked around the clock in sweltering temperatures under the threat of multi-million gallon flash floods to redirect the river. When the water was finally stopped, the newly formed Salton Sea covered 400 square miles. The early years of the sea were mostly quiet. Naturalists categorized the many species of birds that began to congregate on its shores. The Salton Sea Wildlife Refuge was created. During the Second World War, the sea became a source for fish when German U-boats made the ocean too dangerous. The military used the sea for bombing exercises. In fact, the crew that dropped the first atomic bomb on Hiroshima flew practice missions over the Salton Sea. The sea, however, was already shrinking and becoming saltier and saltier. But this didn't stop interest in the sea from growing during the post-war economic boom. One of the people who moved to the Salton Sea after World War II was Helen Burns. She and her family made their home on a small plot of land owned by her father. Her daughter, Donna Kennedy, who was barely more than a toddler at the time, remembers those early years well. She moved us down to the Salton Sea into a trailer, um, which had an adjacent outhouse. And we had a, a standpipe where we could stand and bathe. It didn't make any difference uh, that we were nude because no one else was there. It was completely deserted, just us. Living in this semi-wild meant Donna and her sister had a unique childhood. We did a lot of uh, swimming in the sea. It was very, it was very clean then. Sandy beach and very lovely. So my sister and I would just frolic in the water and the sagebrush and uh, try to catch lizards and avoid snakes and scorpions too. We didn't care for scorpions. Helen, however, had big dreams. She set up a makeshift stand built out of a piano box and some palm fronds. Truck drivers, immigrants trucking up from Mexico, occasional tourists. They all stopped by for Helen's soda, coffee, postcards, or tubes of Salton Sea sand. Business grew, and so did the number of tourists. 
The Salton Sea became a destination, marketed as an inland resort. The next, Palm Springs. By the 1950s, the Salton Sea was the place to be, and Helen expanded to meet the demand. Basically, if you wanted <laughs> to have some fun, you went to Helen's. At her high point, she had a, a, a marina, a boat dock, gas tank, a campground besides the bar and restaurant, uh, the motel. But I'd say by 1958, things were really moving. On the 4th of July, she had hell divers and people water skied across the sea and back and got trophies and wore little horns. And on New Year's, she had icebreakers and people skied across and back. You'd have the Miss Salton Sea Contest, the Mr. Salton Sea Contest. There were treasure trails where people took their dune buggies and roared all over the desert trying to find the little treasures that she had hidden. It was just roaring with activity. Helen even earned a new title, Queen of the Salton Sea. But Helen wasn't the only one who saw the promise of the sea in the 50s and 60s. Other entrepreneurs, sensing opportunity, hitched their fortunes to the sea. The newly formed Salton City grew and grew. Promotional videos from the time show a desert oasis, a paradise of crystalline waters and inviting beaches. The future for Salton Sea couldn't have looked brighter. In an article appearing in the Los Angeles Times, April 17, 1966, Salton City was chosen by a group of planners, architects, administrative officers, politicians, professors, and associated thinkers as one of the 24 major cities in Southern California in the year 2000. But by the late 1960s and early 1970s, however, tourism was drying up. And so was the sea. The water level dropped so significantly, and the salt level rose so much, environmental observers worried that the fish and birds that lived in and around the sea would begin to die. The lack of rainfall in the Imperial Valley meant that the sea's main source of new water was agricultural runoff, which brought with it pesticides. And soon, birds began dying and algae bloomed in the once clear waters. Resorts closed or scraped by with reduced clientele. When powerful tropical storms ripped through the Imperial Valley in the mid-70s, many packed up for good. It used to be a real nice dinner house owned by uh, Bill and Maxine McLaren. What happened to it? Uh, the floods. Uh-huh. And they kind of split up and, well, actually the floods is what did it. By 2000, Salton City was far from being one of Southern California's major cities, as the LA Times had predicted. In fact, its population shrank to less than a thousand. Most people who have heard of the Salton Sea are probably familiar with this era of its life, from the 70s to the present. In the popular imagination, it has existed for almost 50 years as a polluted, decaying, steadily salinating space populated either by diehards left over from its boom years or those looking for off-the-grid living in the surrounding desert. Less than an hour south of the sea, the unincorporated community of Slab City grew on the remains of a defunct military base. Artists, dropouts, and others seeking a life outside of the mainstream congregated in the desert in what is now affectionately referred to as the last free place in America. When we visited Salton Sea, Everett made a trip out to the slab and talked to some of its 
colorful residence. Greetings and welcome to East Jesus. I am your mediocre half-assed tour guide. I don't give tours. That's wizard. I spent six months here uh, and six months in India or Vietnam. If you meet him, his name makes a lot of sense. He's got this long, dusty gray beard that he's clearly been growing for several decades. And he speaks with the confidence of someone who could conjure a rabbit out of a hat. It's a sheltered workshop for the work ethic impaired. They're not lazy. They are work ethic impaired. East Jesus is a massive collaborative art piece. It's the work of over over 2,000 artists. And they would come here and they would be inspired by the art. They would create art. It's about 50 miles from where Everett's family has their plot of land in Salton City, on the other side of the sea. But the environmental disaster at the sea touches both communities. As the sea evaporates in the baking desert sun, dust rises from the exposed lake bed. The wind blows all this toxicity towards San Diego and L.A. And Imperial County doesn't have the money to do anything, but San Diego and L.A. does. If it affects them, they will do something about it. Sort of fine white powdery dust that sets on top of the playa, and a very small wind will blow that. I've been out here at times when it looked like a snow blizzard. You couldn't see anything. Faced with looming environmental and human crises, the state of California has created commissions, convened task forces, and made multi-million, even multi-billion dollar promises to restore the sea. But these plans, some of which have been debated for almost two decades, have not changed the day-to-day reality for many who live in the area. Now the Salton Sea is at a crossroads. It is a potentially vast source of lithium, an essential ingredient in the batteries that power the green economy. Lithium, it's been called white gold. It's kind of this like crucial element in the move towards electric vehicles and the move away from oil and gas. That's Audrey Carlton. I am an environmental journalist for Vice. I wrote this story on the Salton Sea becoming sort of this new quote-unquote lithium valley through this deal that General Motors has with controlled thermal resources. Leading car companies are increasing the number of electric vehicles they can produce. Tesla made headlines last fall for having a market valuation greater than Toyota, Volkswagen, Daimler, Ford, and GM combined. But GM's stated transformative goals set them apart. General Motors is kind of paving the way. So they made a first-in-the-nation commitment to phase out all of their gas-powered cars by 2035. General Motors plans to stop making gas-powered cars by 2035. On the assembly line at this GM plant outside Detroit, there are two things auto workers will never see again. Internal combustion engines and gas tanks. Because they are like the American automaker, and you know they've made this first commitment to be all EV by that period of time, they are really kind of setting a standard for other automakers. Right now, it's estimated that almost 30% of greenhouse gas emissions in the United States come from transportation. So it's understandable why GM's plans are so ambitious and their dedication to lithium mining is so strong. They're really sort of trying to carve themselves out as a leader in the EV space in doing so. And in order to make that happen, they're going to need a lot of lithium. So 
General Motors, struck up a deal with a company called Controlled Thermal Resources to mine for lithium for lithium-ion batteries to go in electric vehicles. Enter the Salton Sea. The U.S. Department of Energy estimates that the sea could be the source of up to 600,000 tons of lithium per year. In fact, the Salton Sea is... The largest brine source of lithium in the world. That's Dr. Michael McKibben. He's an emeritus professor of geology at the University of California, Riverside. He's also one of the authors of a recent report on energy resources, including lithium at the Salton Sea. To understand how lithium will be extracted at Salton Sea, we first need to talk about why it's there in the first place. That's a journey that starts millions of years ago and thousands of miles away. The Colorado River snakes and curves across the southwestern United States, passing through parts of Colorado, Utah, Arizona, Nevada, and finally, California. The waters of the river have traveled that route for millions of years, slowly eating away at sandstone and sediment. It was these waters that carved out the Grand Canyon. And over millennia, the river carried all of the rock and mineral it eroded away. Occasionally, when hard rains fell or there was heavy snowmelt in the Rockies, the river waters rose. And in Southern California, the river would burst its banks and the parched Imperial Valley would be filled temporarily. The ancient lakes that formed became central to the lives and mythologies of the native peoples who lived in the area. Quechuans, Chemehuevis, Cahuillas, and Kumiais gathered on the lake shores and fished their waters. The presence of these lakes can still be seen. The largest and most recent, called Lake Cahuilla, left what are called bathtub rings, or marks on the surrounding rock faces indicating where its waters once stopped. Repeated flooding and evaporation over thousands of years left behind sediment full of minerals and trace metals picked up as the river rushed from the Rockies to the sea. Among those metals, lithium. A lot of lithium. Dr. Michael McKibben explains just how much. Sort of back of the envelope calculation estimates I've done are somewhere in the order of 2 million to 6 million metric tons of lithium. A million or six million of anything is a lot. But Dr. McKibben puts those numbers into perspective. You know, even if we just produce a fraction of it, you know, every year, we could supply all U.S. needs for lithium and actually have enough left over to export it to other countries. So that would totally reverse the situation the U.S. is in, where we're now importing over 95 percent of the lithium we need. Right now, most lithium is mined outside the United States. Australia, Chile, Argentina, and China are all home to robust mining operations. But it's not just the fact that the Salton Sea is in the United States that makes it such an attractive source of lithium. It's the way lithium can be extracted. Right now, there are two common ways lithium is mined, open pit and evaporation. Open pit mining is especially common in Australia. It's vast and remote here in the Pilbara and rich in minerals. Pilbara, sparsely populated and full of lithium. 
It's home to growing mining operations. A new mine has recently opened here with the aim of becoming one of the biggest lithium mines in the world. That clip is from 2018. Since then, global demand for lithium has grown and mining operations have become more and more lucrative. But we do things differently here. Mining hard rock lithium. In this type of mining, lithium-rich rocks are blasted apart, pulverized, and soaked in sulfuric acid. Places like Pilbara are the ideal location for this kind of mining. It's a region slightly larger than Iraq, but with barely more than 60,000 residents. But the pits still leave deep scars across the land, and acid runoff contaminates water supplies. The other type of mining used to collect lithium is evaporation mining. This practice is most common in South America and involves pumping groundwater from underneath dry lake beds and salt flats into enormous evaporation ponds. For example, the ponds at the Atacama Salt Flat form a checkerboard that stretches almost 30 square miles. In addition to taking up a lot of land, this type of mining uses large quantities of water in areas where it is already scarce. Indigenous communities near the Atacama Salt Flats have lost access to water, and those opposed to mining fear for the fate of local wildlife if the mining operation continues. Sonia Ramos believes lithium mining is killing this desert. A growing number of Chilean scientists agree and have come to the Atacama to join her campaign to stop it. So the irony here is clear. Mining lithium, the metal that is crucial to a global transition to clean energy, can create environmental issues of its own. Added to this is another uncomfortable reality. Currently, the most developed nations in the world have the highest demand for lithium, but it's sourced from some of the poorest. As Dr. Michael McKibben notes, We're letting all the environmental problems occur in these other countries to satisfy our need for lithium. But this is where the salt and sea comes in. The way that lithium will be gathered from the brines in the Imperial Valley is so different from open pit and evaporation mining that Dr. Michael McKibben hesitates to call it mining at all. The thing I worry about most is people understanding direct lithium extraction in the context of how lithium is mined elsewhere in the world. And, and that's our really our biggest challenge is we shouldn't call it lithium mining at the Salton Sea. We should call it lithium extraction because it's not mining in the traditional sense of the word. The process, called direct lithium extraction, involves using some of the green energy infrastructure already at the Salton Sea and repurposing it to collect lithium in addition to creating clean energy. There are already large-scale geothermal energy projects at the Salton Sea. Everett and I saw some of them when we visited. Maybe describe what we're seeing, Terry. Okay, well, this is a geothermal plant. It's interesting. It's, it's got, like, everything looks rusted, by the way. It's a lot larger than I thought when we were first driving in. You've got these, like, giant round cylinders um, with scaffolding at the top, I guess, for workers when they're working on top of it. They draw hot saline brine, rich in metals and minerals, to the surface. And as the brine is brought up, the change in pressure causes it to boil. The steam from the brine turns turbines, creating electricity. Usually, the brine and the recondensed steam are pumped back into the ground so the process can begin again. Lithium extraction basically places a filter on this process. 
using other elements to draw the lithium out of the brine after it's already been brought to the surface. Then the brine, minus some lithium, is pumped back into the ground. Geothermal electricity is created, lithium is extracted, and the only remnants are the brine and water. The potential for geothermal energy and lithium extraction at Salton Sea is especially promising because of California's green energy goals. So California is now legislatively mandated to have its electrical grid be based on all renewables by 2045. And so that means we need more geothermal energy to satisfy that requirement. And we need more lithium storage batteries to store electricity. This new commitment to renewables means that California is ready to invest in more geothermal energy. The state, famously situated on a fault line, has huge geothermal potential. But geothermal has long played third fiddle to wind and solar because of the high cost of building power plants. Now, as California works to decarbonize, the growth and demand for geothermal energy could provide an influx of well-paying jobs and political attention to the Imperial Valley. The state uh, public utilities commission just asked for a thousand megawatts more of geothermal energy. And the only place that can be supplied by really is the Salton Sea geothermal field. So they may have to double or triple the number of geothermal power plants down there over the next decade to satisfy the demand for renewable energy. This could be an avenue to even more green industry. More geothermal plants means more potential for lithium extraction. But extraction is only the first step. Currently, almost 80% of lithium-ion batteries are made in China. If lithium extraction at the Salton Sea is successful, it is entirely possible that the area will become the ideal location for large-scale domestic battery production. All of this potential is politically attractive. Presidents from both parties have championed the idea of energy independence for decades. Good evening. Last January 15th, I went before your senators and representatives in Congress with a comprehensive plan to make our country independent of foreign sources of energy by 1985. Technologies and more independence from foreign oil. There is no security for the United States in further dependence on foreign oil. I have repeatedly called in this campaign for more energy independence for America. One of the greatest results of using hydrogen power, of course, will be energy independence for this nation. We are closer to energy independence than we've ever been before. We have energy independence right now. Quote, energy independent. Uh, which is a phrase that's thrown around. Energy independence, a political catchphrase that is so popular because it can mean, well, almost anything. Does it mean opening up protected lands for oil drilling, expanding fracking operations, investing in wind power and solar arrays? Well, depending on who's speaking, it could be any of those or all of them. But the underlying desire for stable, domestic sources of energy makes a lot of sense. And as the globe transitions to green energy, the benefits of significant domestic production of lithium and lithium batteries will only grow. The question remains, will lithium extraction do what no other industry has accomplished 
and bring political attention and well-paying jobs to the Imperial Valley? Infrastructure turned this desert into productive farmland, but young people worry that there's no political will to help this delicate ecosystem and the families who live here. For decades, the communities near the Salton Sea have heard numerous government promises of investment. Anecdotically, after windy days, we see a lot more asthma patients coming in. Myself and my family developed asthma while living here. Childhood asthma rates are more than twice as high in the area around the Salton Sea than in the rest of California. As the sea continues to shrink, This area used to be in water, but now, obviously it's dry here, and the shoreline is hundreds of yards in this direction. More and more fine dust particles are exposed, and risk rises. The hope is that through lithium extraction, not only will the area receive an economic boost, but efforts to restore the area will also gain attention and urgency. For a very long time, the state was the number one entity working to to restore the Salton Sea. And to be honest with you, things were going very slow. Roy Durantes is a former news producer and the founder of a group called Saving the Salton Sea. He's also the director of the Salton Sea Film Festival, which gives local youth the opportunity to document their experiences of the area. I am not an expert. Um, I am just a concerned resident. I know some people who suffer asthma, and uh, one of my very close friends, uh, you know, had had uh, some asthma seizures. The playa that as it dries, all these contaminants that have been dormant there for practically a hundred years could dry up and become airborne, could become dust, and go into the region into people's lungs. Durantes worries that the speed of the state's response does not match the rate at which the environmental disaster is escalating. If you look at the playa exposure, uh, this thing, man, is drying. It's almost like in a race to dry up, and, and we're in a race to, uh, to stop it from drying up because we don't want to turn this into a ghost town. <laughs> but there are still open questions about what lithium extraction will mean for the Imperial Valley. One thing is certain, lithium operations will grow in coming years. Global demand is expected to rise by over 800% in the next decade. So as this new layer of energy infrastructure is being created, it's important to ask the right questions. At the Salton Sea, an area that has seen economic and political promise come and go, all these questions are playing out in real time. As Dr. McKibben explains... So part of the challenge to the geothermal companies and then those of us who are doing research down there is to educate the public about what's going on and to help them understand that this is not traditional lithium mining we're talking about. A little bit like the LA Times in 1966 envisioning the area as the next Palm Springs, there is a potentially thrilling future in the making at Salton Sea. One where lithium extraction is a success. Battery factories are built. Well-paying jobs flood the Imperial Valley, like the Colorado River waters. And the environmental crisis at the sea is contained. That's a future Roy Durantes can see. What's important is the thousands of families who are here, the thousands of kids, the thousands of people. My hopes for the area 
is that uh, the Salton Sea is restored so that it becomes a place of business, a place of industry, a place of, of recreation, a place of economy. A lot of us are very expectant and very hopeful. We wanna see something happen. We want people to bring in solutions. Beneath the Surface is a production of Stripe Press. The senior producers for the series are myself and Everett Katigbak. This episode was produced by Jack Rossiter-Munley. Whitney Chen was our production manager. Our sound mixer and sound designer was Jim McKee, and we had editing support from Astrid Landon. Original music for this episode was composed by Arbus. To learn more about Stripe Press, our books, our films, and more, visit press.stripe.com. All right, that's it for this episode. I've been your host, Tamara Winter. This is Beneath the Surface.